0: I'm super excited to bring you this episode. This is the first interview in a very long time that I've been able to do on the podcast. Life has not really given me a lot of opportunity to schedule interviews and sit down with people. So I haven't been able to do them. I've missed them. I love having people on the podcast. I love sitting and talking to other physicians and to hear their viewpoints on different topics. And today we have a really good one. Dr. Crystal Soditus is coming to talk to us. She's a pediatrician and has an interest in helping physicians with neurodiversity. And today we're going to talk about the interest between ADHD and other forms of neurodiversity and eating and binge eating disorder, because there are connections. And if you are a physician who either has a diagnosis or kind of wonders if you have traits, this will be a really helpful interview. But also, Even if you don't have a diagnosis or think that you have traits, I think this is a helpful interview for all physicians who might encounter patients who have ADHD, because Crystal gives a really interesting viewpoint on neurodiversity. I picked up some really good tips just from talking to her about how to pick things up when you're hearing patients describe their experiences. So regardless, whether you have a diagnosis or not, this is a great episode. I hope you enjoy the interview. Let's get right to it. All right. I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Crystal Sotaitis. We just practiced pronouncing your last name, and I apologize, I messed it up. Back to the podcast and to be one of the first interviews in a very long time. We were just talking about this before we started recording. I'm really excited to just actually be able to get back to interviewing people on the podcast. And today's topic, I think, is going to be super helpful and relevant for a whole lot of the physicians that listen to this podcast. So we're talking about the intersection between ADHD and eating, essentially. Can you go ahead and just introduce yourself to everybody and let them know where you got interested in neurodiversity, ADHD, and all the other things that you do?
1: Yeah. So I'm Crystal Soditis. I am a pediatrician by training. I am Academic General Peds Fellowship trained, and my Career started out like many people's in fellowship. I went into academic practice. I was there for about 10 years. And then I veered off and here in the US, we have a number of you know national and local health insurance companies and they employ physicians to do what we call utilization management. And I really enjoyed taking that sort of turn into that part of medicine, the business part of medicine and thrived international plan, doing not just utilization management, but also policy work and claims adjudication. Along the way, I found coaching and I realized that the coaching tools that are taught in the school where, I think you're a LCS coach too, right, Siobhan? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So in the coaching tools that are taught at the Life Coach School, really are fantastic tools in my leadership tool belt. I initially joined coach certification because I wanted to use coaching as a leadership tool to be able to coach myself through management difficulties, to be able to coach my team through you know difficult transitions, et cetera. Along the way, I fell in love with one-on-one coaching. It brought back that aspect of patient care that I had been missing for more than five years at that point, so I started to think about what types of people I wanted to coach. For those of us that are physicians, I think that all physicians are cognitively gifted. We have to be, in order to get through the rigors of you know medical school and residency, giftedness itself is a neurodiversity. And I realized, though, and for those of us that have kids, if you are looking at, you know, you do a basic internet search about how to help your gifted child, there's a million hits. But what I also found as I dug in more and did more and more research is that there is, especially in the adolescent and young adult population, there is a lot of failure, anxiety, depression, substance abuse and I saw a need in that population for coaching that really the help for them kind of fell off within the young adult population is medical residents and slowly as I started coaching more and more physicians I found myself really drawn to physicians who have a neurodevelopmental diagnosis there are a number of people in my own family with neurodevelopmental diagnoses ADHD OCD anxiety depression etc and I know from them and from others, all of the gifts that neurodiversity comes with. No brain is created to be bad in all aspects. We all have areas where we excel. And so I made the decision to focus specifically on physicians with neurodiversity in order to help them see the amazing things that their brains can do and have them change the way they see their brains from a deficit perspective to a gifts perspective
0: which is awesome and I think so important. And I'm sure most of the physicians listening to this have also kind of experienced things that you and I were talking about before we started recording in that ADHD and other forms of neurodiversity are just getting talked about so much more. And I was saying in our practice, we're seeing so many adult women coming in saying, I've been hearing about this and it describes me and it describes what my experience has been. And so not only is it being talked about more, but I think- More people are bringing it as uh, I think this explains why things have been challenging for me or why things are still challenging for me. And one of those areas of challenge can come up with eating, which is why we originally decided to do this interview, is just the intersection between binge eating disorder and ADHD. But also, even for those of you who don't identify with binge eating, it also changes impulsivity and things like that when it comes to eating. It can be impacting. Let's start by talking about why is it so hard? Like, why do so many physicians maybe fly under the radar and not get diagnosed or get a later diagnosis? And specifically, when we're talking about women, why is it harder for women to get picked up with this?
1: So the first thing is that, let me talk first about why physicians might be diagnosed later. And that is because of our intelligence, we are able to acquire information faster than most other people. So if you are not paying attention in class and you got something, let's say it's a mathematical principle and you, maybe it's long division. It doesn't take you a hundred tries to get the example correctly, right? Like when kids are in second and third grade and they're doing simple mathematics over and over and over again, right? If you've ever seen one of those pages, there's probably like a 100 examples and a 100 exercises to do. If you have the intelligence that many physicians do, it doesn't take you that many. So you probably get the concept after five or 10. So you're able to get distracted and it doesn't impact your learning, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. But mm-hmm. everybody gets to a point where they now need to apply themselves more. Now for some people, and that's why for those of us in training, third grade was a huge time for people to be identified because generally that is a time when the level of knowledge and executive functioning kind of goes up. So for many people, especially if they're kids and they're of average intelligence, that's when the cracks will start to show. But for physicians, that doesn't happen. Some of them, it happened in medical school. Some of them, it happened in residency. For other people, it isn't an issue around intelligence and acquiring information. It's a question around executive functioning. ADHD is fundamentally an executive functioning issue. Part of executive functioning is working memory, which is why it's hard to retain some information for some people, but it's also task initiation. It's also planning. And so there are many people who they do fine until they get the added stress of now they have to run a clinic. So it's not just seeing patients, which they sort of managed to do, and their coping strategies and their scaffolding to manage their life did fine. But now you added that additional stress or need to acquire skill of managing an office and everything falls apart. For other people, it's having a child. Now you not have to manage getting yourself. It's hard enough for many people with ADHD to get themselves out the door on time. Now they have to manage getting a child ready and themselves to go out the door. So that's why, in summary, the reason why many physicians are diagnosed late is because their intelligence is able to get them further than the majority of other people. Now, when it comes to women, there are many theories about why women are being diagnosed later than boys. When I was in training, it was because phenotypically, they were more of the daydreamers and they didn't act out and boys tended to be more hyperactive than you know girls. And there may be some truth to that, but really what's coming out is that women and girls are much more attuned to society and to the societal norms around them And so they're aware of what the expectations are of their behavior and they mask their symptoms much better than boys do. There's also some messaging that happens when girls are little about they're told more often to sit still and to be a good girl and just boys are not given a coloring page to sit down and color they're given a car and if they're zoom zooming a car on and off the table or like flinging it off the table, that's socially acceptable for a boy and it's generally not for a girl. And girls get that messaging and internalize it and that is why they may hide those symptoms up until the point where, like I said, one of these other things happened and they're not able to hide their symptoms. There are some other socially acceptable, I'm in quotations, and unacceptable behaviors. For example, it's okay if a man leaves his clothes in the basket, like he might clean his clothes and then just leave it in the basket and dress himself from the basket. And that's socially acceptable for a man. But for a woman, she's expected to clean the clothes, fold the laundry and put it away, which for many of my clients with ADHD, laundry is a major hurdle.
0: I'm thinking about Thinking about all of my clothes in laundry bins. There was a time, guilty uh, story here, but there was a time in university where my husband and I had a couch in our bedroom. And if the clothes were on the couch, they were clean. If they're on the floor, they were dirty. That was our only yep. system.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I talk about laundry a lot. Laundry and paperwork.
0: Yeah. yeah, and that's a huge challenge as a physician, right? Like you go into yeah. it for the patient care. But then the sitting down and getting the notes done and doing them efficiently and timely, so you don't spend your whole life doing notes, and also doing all those forms and going through all that paperwork, those create big challenges for sure.
1: Yeah. And what I find a lot with my clients is those are challenges for everybody, but especially if they have a diagnosis as a child, which some do, and they get some messaging as a child, they blame the ADHD, oh, I can't get this done because I have ADHD, there's something wrong with me. No, it's a challenge Mm. for everybody to get their charts done. It's not Mm -hmm. the ADHD. I mean, ADHD might pose some unique challenges, but it's not like people with ADHD can't get their charts done and people without it can.
0: Right. I really like the view that you've offered there because offering some, you know, alternative views from obviously the traditional teaching that we all got around ADHD And I can see that of, like, as physicians, just higher intellect, you don't actually have to focus as long. So, like, if you can only focus for X length of time, but you can absorb the majority of the topic in that time frame, you're good and you're going to succeed. It's just once you reach situations where the requirement goes outside of that uh, focus time. Yeah. How does it show up for physicians, like, for those who are older who haven't had a diagnosis? What is it that they kind of come to you wondering about, or like, I'm just curious, where is the functional impairment when it starts to show up for them?
1: Yeah. For some, they don't see a functional impairment per se, which is so heartbreaking for me is that they see it as sort of like a moral failure. Many people come because they were getting their kids evaluated and they see all the features. And this isn't just ADHD. This is autism. This is dyslexia. Mm -hmm. And as they're checking off the boxes for their kids, or they're hearing about the evaluation of their kids, light bulbs are going off in their own head. It's like, oh. And that's when, and often they can feel very validated, like, oh, I understand now. Like, this is why I have trouble getting out the door in time. But what they come to me with is, I still don't know what to do. Like, I understand why it's hard to get the laundry folded, why I lose my keys every other day. But now I need help actually figuring out how to stop, like how to get out the door on time more often. How do Mm -hmm. I sort of hold on to my keys so that I don't need to, you know, my husband doesn't have like five different sets because I lose them every other day. Does Mm -hmm. that answer your
0: question? Yeah, totally. I'm just laughing again cuz the way I did it. And I don't have a diagnosis of ADHD, but we were talking before is I definitely am like, hmm, I wonder if there is some possibility, but I went out and bought air tags for the keys cuz my husband was getting so mad at me at always losing them. <laughs> he'd always be asking where are the keys. I'm like, they're in my bag somewhere. <laughs> now I'm like, yeah. yeah, I'll pull up at the yeah. air tag and find out where they are. <laughs> Let's start talking about the intersection between ADHD and the eating piece. Because as you know, I work with physicians who come to me with the like, I know what's healthy. Why the heck do I keep eating this other stuff? And definitely there's an interconnection there.
1: Yeah. So there's fairly good data that people with ADHD have lower levels of dopamine than people without ADHD. And I think the data is similar for people with binge eating disorder. So what happens is... and do You probably know the dopamine curve much better than I do, but we know that dopamine peaks when you get the cue, when you are thinking about what it is that you want to eat. And then from that dopamine, you're driven to eat the thing. Because the starting level is low, when you get that dopamine hit, it feels so much better. And so that delta, it can be really hard to resist, Right that desire to eat because it feels so much better for somebody with ADHD than for somebody without ADHD. So that's the first thing. I mean, there are other aspects in terms of if you're thinking, I'm sure this is with binge eating disorder, but probably with eating in general, we're taught, you know, plan your meals in advance. Well, many people with ADHD have a real difficulty with planning. There can be difficulties in what we now know as interoception, which is a sensation of your body. So, having that clue of, I'm full, some people with poor interoception don't know they're full until they are legitimately sick. Like they just are in pain. And that is when their brain finally gets the clue, oh, you need to stop eating now. You know, people with ADHD can have a difficulty with impulse control. So, And it's just sort of like, well, you know, the cookies were there and they were in my mouth before I knew it. And without ADHD, if you're talking to somebody without ADHD, you might be like, well, you know, what were you thinking right before you reach for the cookies, blah, blah, blah. People with ADHD, it's really imperceivable. It's just a habit. They can't tell you what they were thinking or feeling. They legitimately saw the cookies and they were in their mouth. And it's interesting, the dopamine
0: stuff, I've never
1: thought about it that way. But basically, so somebody with
0: ADHD or inherently lower dopamine levels essentially experiences more pleasure from the same eating. And I totally agree with you. The the dopamine hit starts when you start thinking, especially when it comes to binge eating. When you start to think about giving in to the binge craving is definitely when the, the dopamine hits. And then what's interesting, just listening to you talk, is then when you layer on The fact that a lot of the food we're reaching for is manufactured to also create more dopamine. For sure. So, you know, it creates an even bigger delta between like if you had a craving and you wanted dopamine and you had an apple, that's going to give you a bit of a blip. But you go and have a candy bar that's designed to activate your dopamine and it's going to give you that bigger hit. So then those things become the things that you want to reach for and where you feel really compelled to reach for. And I see this a lot, and I'm not sure, I wonder if you see it in your population, but a lot of people then when we start talking about, okay, like if we're going to tone down the eating a little bit, where do we get the dopamine from? And Mm -hmm. for a lot of physicians, that's a really hard question, because the other piece that gets layered into this is that throughout our training, throughout our lives, throughout getting kids, all those things, we kind of give up the aspects of our life that may have naturally activated our dopamine. We don't yeah. do fun stuff. It gets to the point where you don't even remember what fun is. Like so many physicians I've coached, when we say, well, what would be fun? They're like, I have no idea anymore. I can't even think yeah. of it.
1: Yeah. You know, and with the people that I coach, we really touch on really small wins and getting the dopamine from, sometimes it's just following through on what you said you were going to do. Many people have lost integrity with themselves right? Because they just think, I can't do it. I've never been able to do it. Even if they say they're going to do something, they don't believe that they're going to follow through. So that's where we, if we're talking about how do we get like these small dopamine hits? Yeah, it comes from starting to build integrity with yourself, starting to trust that you are going to be able to follow through on what you have said you're going to do.
0: And how do you help somebody who doesn't have that belief in themselves anymore, where they're like, I can never follow through with what I say. How do you help them start taking those first few steps? What are some practical ways people listening could try?
1: I like, and I use for myself as well, to use as a measure. The first step is a step in the direction we're trying to go that you think isn't going to make any difference at all. So an example, I work with many people who have lots of piles of paper and they are trying to build a system to address the piles of paper on their desk or wherever it is. And we often will start with two pieces of paper. You know, we'll tie it with something else. We're very specific about when, what time, where, what the circumstances around doing those papers are, whether it's going to be two times a week, three times a week. But it's an extremely small step and it's more about Being able to trust that they are going to follow through on what they said they were going to do. And for most people, they're like, that is not going to make any difference. And that is how we know it's the first place to start. Let's just start with something so small. And once you build integrity with yourself that, yep, I'm going to do two pieces of paper three days a week while I am sitting at the table drinking my morning coffee. And once that becomes a no-brainer, then you build from there. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. And I think we can, like, crossing that over into the food area for anybody who's identifying with all of this, I would use a very similar approach. And, like, if you're struggling to take action, looking for that, like, lowest common denominator, trying to let go of that concept that everything needs to change or the day has to look perfect from an eating perspective to be successful, And just focus on that one place where you're confident that, okay, even if I'm exhausted, even if I'm super stressed out, I can do that.
1: Yeah, and for somebody, let's say, that was working on eating, I might say, okay, let's just start with, instead of eating out of the bag, the carton, the whatever, you're just going to put it in a bowl. You're going to put it in a plate. Let's just build integrity with ourselves that you can Serve it. And to start with, it might even be like, look, you don't even have to stop at one. You can continue to take the popcorn out of the bag and put it into the bowl, but you're just not going to eat out of the bag. And when you can build integrity with yourself, that when you eat popcorn, you eat it out of the bowl, then maybe we can go to the next step and decide on how many servings. takes a lot of compassion with themselves, hey? A lot.
0: like. Just listening to this and obviously the physicians I work with on the weight side, it also takes a lot of compassion. Both of these are areas where we're pretty tough on ourselves,
1: Mm -hmm. eating
0: and weight and then our organization executive
1: functioning. So much is required of us. And that's why I look for where people excel in order to help them figure out how to work on what they need to work on. That's not a really good way of saying it. But giving an example from, let's say, a meal prep standpoint. And the person excels at or enjoys, you know, listening to podcasts or listening to a particular song, right? And they do really well that way. Or this is a better example. So let's say that a person has ADHD and they have hyperfocus. Hyperfocus is the tendency to when you are working on something, you are in flow and you are able to get a lot done in a relatively short period of time. So I might work with someone and find out how they get into hyperfocus. What are some of the drivers for them to get them into that state? And then when they're in that state, perhaps that is when they do their meal planning. Perhaps that is when they do their meal prep. So that they're not trying in their low energy time, right? At the end of the day, when they are touched out from their kids and they are trying to get charts done, then they're thinking, oh, now I've got to do my meal prep. no. I think neurodiverse people in general, but especially people with ADHD, their brains are activated at different parts of the day than people without ADHD. Some people are like wide awake from like 10 to 2. I worked with someone. She did her best work from 10 to 2. And so maybe that's when you meal prep. If that's not disturbing for your family and everybody can sleep, why not? That is when she did a lot of her documentation. Her brain was awake. She was hyper-focused and she was able to really be very, very efficient. Instead of lying in bed, trying to sleep with her mind ruminating, saying, why can't you sleep? Why can't you sleep? Why can't you sleep?
0: I love this because I talk a lot about the concept in weed of we have to meet ourselves where we're at. We have to stop trying to like push ourselves into some ideal of how it should look and instead go, these are the realities of my life this is what my life looks like on busy days and create solutions around it. And that's essentially what you're saying too with this is like meet yourself where you're at. If your strength is at weird times of the day, that's okay, that's just you. Like yeah. it's so interesting just as we talk, just hearing all the like little subtle places where you could beat yourself up for not fitting into the quote unquote mold. Exactly. <laughs> of, including like I should be in bed at 10 because that's would be healthy and that's what... I'm supposed to do as a physician and yet I can't. Let's talk more about the gifts that can come with neurodiversity and ADHD and how people might be able to leverage some of those gifts because we've talked a bit about the limitations, but obviously it's not just a one-sided condition.
1: Yeah, and I just want to preface this by saying these are generalities. This doesn't mean that every person with ADHD is incredibly creative or entrepreneurial. But there are some studies that show that people with ADHD do tend to be more entrepreneurial, that have to more creative minds. And the theory is that they see all aspects. They're not very narrow in their thinking. They constantly have ideas coming from all different directions. And then they bring those ideas together. And what resonates, they are able to move forward with it, and come up with some incredible ideas. There was a study done in the U.S. that showed that 35% of U.S. entrepreneurs have dyslexia.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: What it is about the dyslexic brain that creates that entrepreneurial gift, there are a lot of theories. I think either three or four of the sharks on Shark Tank have dyslexia. For sure, Barbara Corcoran and for sure, Mark Cuban. And I think, I can't remember what his name is. So some people think it's because they need to find other ways to problem solve, right? Or they need to be able to take whatever information they have, right? They can't read every single word. So they take whatever they can infer and they have to accurately be able to come up with the answer, And so that sort of like early brain training somehow perhaps helps them to problem solve in a business setting. There's no answer. These are all theories. We know the stereotype that, you know, people with autism are good at math. That is a stereotype, but they do like processes, right? They do like systems. So all of the neurodiversities, like I said, no brain is designed to be all good at every be good at everything or bad at everything. There's a term called the spiky profile, which if you think of it is sort of like it's sort of like an uneven star. So a star that doesn't have like its spikes all exactly the same, but there are some areas where you do super well and there are some areas where you are below the curve. And that's probably a normal brain. Probably all brains are like that, but when you have one area like intelligence or visual spatial Design. If you have one area that's really way out in like the far superior, you can be sure that there's going to be another part of the brain that's very, you know, below baseline, that's far below baseline. It's,
0: it's interesting. Just uh, brains are fascinating.
1: Right?
0: <laughs> so, yeah. so much that we're still learning about them. If anybody's listening and they're like, oh, this is helpful and they're identifying with it, what would you suggest their next steps would be? Or how would you suggest that they kind of proceed? to yeah. do the things we've been talking about, meeting themselves where they're at. and Right.
1: Well, I do have an ebook, Top Five Tips, if you recently identified as neurodiverse. And I think I sent that to you. If I didn't, I can send you a link to that, which is really five or six tips to start with and ways to address your way of thinking to, like you said, meet yourself where you're at, get rid of your old stories, right? You're not what people say, like a hot mess, right? And- start to look for the areas that you excel and see how you can use those areas to support where you struggle. I am a firm believer in working on our gifts and supporting our challenges. So if you are not someone that, like for me, I am not a good organizer. Like I am not someone that you're gonna find, like my pantry, my pantry is beautifully organized, but that's because of my husband right? But me, that is not the way my brain works. Like, I don't know how he does that. So I would encourage someone like me, I am not going to spend time, money, and energy on some course helping me to organize my pantry. I'm going to accept that my pantry is sometimes a mess, but I know where everything is. And I'm going to use my strengths to find something else. Maybe I need to figure out how to get things regularly from the grocery bag into the pantry, And how do the areas where I excel, like I'm really good at task initiation and I'm really good at follow through. So if I put it on my calendar, hey, at two o'clock, you're putting the groceries away. That's happening. So now I just need to work with myself to get something on my calendar.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I love it. I love the idea of focusing on our strengths. And what I'm thinking about is there's probably some people listening to this that are so used to beating themselves up about what they perceive their deficits to be that the idea of thinking where their strengths are may actually be really challenging. And I was going to say, if that's you listening, I would say that is a fantastic place to start to just start asking, what are my strengths? What am I good at? What are my gifts? Because the more we ask our brain to look at the positive things, it will find them. They are there. It's just we're trained and also biologically default towards seeing the negatives often.
1: Yeah, A help? I'm not saying everybody needs neuropsychological testing. If, though, you have old neuropsychological testing, maybe from even when you were a kid, or you have more recently done it because you've been recently diagnosed, that will tell you where you excel. I worked with somebody who, once he went through his testing, it's amazing that you forget these things, but he remembered that he had a photographic memory for things that he would write out. His reading and his reading comprehension was terrible. If he heard something, he remembered it. And if he drew it, it was hard-coded. He was studying for boards. So we worked on a way to translate and to be able to get that written word into whether it was something auditory that he read himself or he would just write it out as he was studying and it was completely hard-coded. If you have an evaluation of any kind, look for that and see where your strengths are.
0: Mm -hmm. There are online strengths assessments too, just for people who don't have access to neuropsychological testing or want. I can't think of the brands of them. There's a few of them out there and they may not go into like the real subtleties in learning, but they will kind of probably point you in the direction of where your strengths are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Where can people find you if they want to hear more? So my website is neurodiversedocs.com. And you can go there, sign up for my email list, my blog. I don't blog enough. I don't send you tons of emails. I usually blog about once a month. I actually am on LinkedIn quite a lot. That's my, the place, that's the social media where I hang out. I've got a LinkedIn audio that I do every Saturday morning at 830. And so if you follow me and you connect with me, there'll usually be a little pop up when I come in doing a LinkedIn audio and we talk about all kinds of things, neurodiversity. And uh, yeah, email me. I'll give you my email address for the show notes. And that's me.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. I found this conversation really interesting. I think it'll be helpful for a lot of people.
1: Great. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm so happy to have Crystal with me, and I really enjoyed that interview. I found it really fascinating. I think I have some thinking to do of my own. I'm like, hmm, I identify with a lot of what you're saying. But I think that's true of a lot of us positions, right? Anyways, thank you so much for listening. If you love this podcast, please stop by wherever you're listening to it and leave a review. It really does help the podcast get found. And also, especially for a topic like this that is so out in the news these days, if you could share it with other physicians. I think there's a lot of physicians out there That may feel alone in their neurodiversity, may not realize how common it is, and just sharing it and being able to talk about it like so many other topics is really, really important. So please share it. I'll put all the links for Crystal's contact information in the show notes so you can access it there. Have a fantastic day, guys. Bye-bye.